This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our time in his word. Father, you revealed yourself to us in your word that you might be understood. You know, know us, you know our capabilities because you created them. You designed us in such a way that you would be able to communicate to us and that we would be able to understand that which you have revealed to us. Father, we study your word. The more we study, the more we learn. And as we go through your word, we come face to face with the realities of your creation. The fact that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. The fact that there is nothing whatsoever that we can do to change that fact. Nothing that we can do to, to gain your approval. Nothing we can do out of our own fallen nature that has any eternal value, any spiritual value in your sight. Because of your love for us, you provided a perfect salvation. You had a plan before you created the first human being, and in your plan, because of your omniscience, you knew of human failure, human sin, and you provided a perfect salvation. You revealed that plan in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the payment for sin was made when he was crucified on the cross. Father, because we have trusted in Christ as Savior, we have new life. The challenge for us is to live in light of that new life, to live as true followers of Jesus, and that means we have to truly understand what he taught and how we are to apply it in our lives. And we pray as we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount that we might uh, understand accurately what is being communicated here, that we may apply it in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, and we're in verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And the focus in verses 13 through 16 is on the disciple as salt and light. Now, this is a metaphor used to teach something significant about who we are, not what we are to become, but who we are. And, and one of the unique things about Christianity, as opposed to world philosophies and world religions, is that Christianity teaches that we are to become what we already are. Okay? We are to become what we already are in Christ. In, other, in philosophies and world religions, we are to become what we should be. You see the difference? See, in Christianity, we're not to become what we should be. We are to become what we already are. 
We are to learn to live in light of a new reality that comes into existence at the point of faith in Christ. Now, as we studied in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning and the Beatitudes, that focused on Christian character or the character of a believer, not Christian character, because it applied uh, cross-dispensationally. It applied to the people in his audience at that time who were under the dispensation of the Mosaic Law in the age of Israel. But as I've been pointing out, it also applies to church-age believers. These are universal principles, and they're character qualities that should be developed in the disciple in preparation for the future kingdom. As we went through those Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, again and again we saw that there were there were emphasis for motivation in relation to our future destiny in the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven in the first Beatitude. And the third Beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Then in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, indicating a more intimate relationship with God in heaven than others. Uh, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, indicating something more, something distinct from being a simple child of God, which is true for every believer. And then in the last beatitude, which we studied last time, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, at the end, the last verse we studied last time, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward. So the context, which is crucial for understanding any passage, in fact, the more I teach Bible study methods, which we just completed, the more I go through uh, issues related to hermeneutics and interpretation, the more I am aware that context is king. Just like the three laws of real estate or location, 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 the three laws of Bible study are context, context, context. Context and location are basically the same idea. Okay, we have to know what the context is. And it, one, of the, one of the sophomoric errors or freshman errors of, of Bible study comes when people think that by looking a word up in a dictionary or lexicon, that, that that is the absolute, that tells you what a word means. And you have to recognize that lexicographers, though they are very well educated, have their biases. They have lots of biases, what, no matter what uh, dictionary you're going to, whether it's just an English dictionary or whether it is a Greek or Hebrew lexicon of Scripture, there are biases that are present there. There are methodological biases. There are theological biases. There are exegetical biases. Now, they try to avoid those as much as possible, but those are present in those dictionaries. And one of the things that I often heard, especially in my Hebrew classes, it was true for Greek students as well at Dallas Seminary, but it was also stated by, by many professors at Dallas, is at the end of three years of Hebrew study at, at Dallas and Hebrew, studying Hebrew exegesis, that we would be as, as qualified or more qualified than many of the commentators to do analytical work in Hebrew in terms of the language. 
And that is true. It's not true for every student because a lot of students just didn't pay that much attention. When they graduate, their Hebrew Bible usually became a doorstop. Uh, but, but that's true, that, and that's part of a good quality education. Some years ago, one of the young men that, that I um, had the privilege of training uh, many years ago, it's sort of how some things that come around go around. He was also the, he was not saved until he was in his early 30s, but he was the nephew of Bill Munnerlin, who was assistant pastor where, at Baraka Church where I grew up when I was a kid. And um, later on, uh, Buck got his doctorate in education, and he was the academic dean at College of Biblical Studies here and took them through the entire uh, process of, of uh, accreditation. And he learned a lot of interesting things about academic accreditation. And one of the things that he learned was that, now this was 20 years ago, but I think it's still pretty true, is that in terms of academia, the four-year Masters of Theology at Dallas Seminary has more cre- credibility than uh, the Doctor of Ministry program at every other seminary, and it almost has as much prestige in the eyes of academicians and those on accrediting committees as a Ph.D. because of the intensity and quality of the work that was expected at Dallas. And even with, in my opinion, though there's been some dilution and the quality control is not what it was in the 60s and 70s, I think even the 60s was better than when I was there in the 70s, those guys who went there in the 60s had to write a master's sort of a mini-thesis at the end of their second year as well as their primary thesis at the end of their fourth year. It was much more academically rigorous in the 60s than in the 70s, and I think the 70s were a lot more academically rigorous than today. Now, the reason I say that is not to tout my education, but to make a point that the education of a, of a good quality education gives a person the ability and should give them the ability to make certain critical distinctions and evaluate judgments that are made in scholarly literature. And that's the point. Scholars make, make mistakes. And in my Bible study methods class, when I teach about how to use a lexicon, how to do studies, I often point out several places in which there are uh, errors in these lexica, so they're not absolutes. We've got to go back to the principle I started with, context, context, context. What determines word meaning is not what the dictionary or the lexicon says, but usage. More and more, I realize you really have to take the time to go through the uses of, this, of the word to determine its range of meaning and do that for yourself. Now, that takes a lot of time, and usually pastors don't have the kind of time necessary, but if you've been a pastor over a period of 10, 20, 30 years, and you've done uh, 4, 5, 10, 15 in-depth word studies every year, then you have a lot behind you, and you have a lot of arrows in your quiver, as it were, to update the metaphor. You've got a lot of rounds in your magazine. You're not limited to just a 30-round uh, or a 10-round magazine. You, you have a lot of ammo, and you're ready to go. So that's, that's important background because I'm saying that because this passage is one that's always kind of bothered me a little bit. I'm familiar with all the major arguments and all the writers and everything, but, but context has the context and what is said in especially verse 13 always seems seem to not quite fit 
the interpretation that has that is most popular. And when I wrote the spiritual warfare book, I had an element in there uh, where I dealt with this, and I'm, I, do, I disagree with that. I've done a lot more work on it and discovered some things this time that I didn't wasn't aware of before. So we, and it all comes down to context and word studies. So we get into uh, our first verse here, Matthew 5. Uh, let's just, um, wait a minute. That should not, oh, that was last week. Let's go Matthew 5.13. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, that's the New King James Version translation of the text. What I want to do is put some other translations up on the board for you so you can see how they and where they differ. I chose four different translations. I could have selected from uh, a couple of others, but I think these are basically representative. Uh, the second verse down is from the New American Standard of 95, You are the salt of the earth. And I've underlined the key phrase that is different in each, each translation. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? So you notice in the New King James it says, how shall it be seasoned? The question you have to answer is, what is to what does the it refer? Does, it, does the it refer to the salt? Or does the it refer to that which the salt uh, impregnated or seasoned? See, the New King James takes it as, as if the, you put salt on something and it loses its saltiness, so how are you going to re-salt whatever it was you salted to begin with? The NASB looks at the salt as if it lost its saltiness. How do you restore saltiness to the salt? In the third example, we have Darby's translation. This was in the 19th century. That's John Nelson Darby, who's the theological founder of dispensationalism. He said, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become insipid, Wherewith shall it be salted? So again, he he takes it similar to the NASB uh, or, or, or to the first one. How shall it? That is the object. Be the implication be resalted again? Notice all three of these translations. In fact, all four of them take take the fact that it's flavor. There's a reason for that, but um, it's not in this passage. They get that from looking at Mark 9, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the parallel of Mark, which we're not going to look at in the study. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? The implication here as you look at this is that the context and what, how it's translated seems to indicate that the focus of the metaphorical comparison here between salt and the disciple is in the realm of salt and its use as, as a flavoring agent. Okay? We have a metaphor here. You refers to the disciples, says you are the salt of the earth. Now, a metaphor is an implied comparison. If it was a stated comparison, it would be a simile, and Jesus would have said you are like the salt of the earth. Or you are as the salt of the earth. If you have the word like or as, it's a stated comparison that makes it assimilate. If it's an unstated comparison, you just say you are something. 
Similes and metaphors are subcategories of analogies. We had a really sharp little four-year-old kid at Child Evangelism Fellowship this last week, and um, Mark was teaching uh, teaching the story, and instead of calling it a metaphor, he called it an analogy. And this little kid turned, I, was sitting right in front of me, turned to his kid next to him and says, it's not an analogy, it's a metaphor. <laughs> so a metaphor... Is from a word in Greek that, and I should have, I just remembered this picture. I have a great picture of a truck, of, of a cargo truck, panel truck, driving down the street of, I think it was in Berea, in Greece, and it had a windscreen up over the cab, and across it, in Greek, it said metaphora, transportation. It's the idea. Metaphor transports a meaning from one image to another. And so what you're doing is you're taking a literal concept of salt, but there's something about salt that you want to transfer to the disciple. Now, the problem with this is there are a lot of different aspects of salt. Salt was a crucial element in the ancient world. In fact, at times it was priced equivalent to gold, and in some rare cases it was more expensive than gold. Uh, it was used to pay sa- uh, salaries, uh, and that's where we get our word salary is from the root in Latin for salt, because the uh, soldiers were paid in salt. Now, when we look at interpretation of this particular passage, I've identified seven different ways in which Christian scholars have identified the, the significance of this metaphor. Uh, seven different ways that um, that you'll find it. Now, before we get to that, uh, one writer comments, I don't know who it was, this is the um, in the notes of the New uh, English Translation, the Net Bible, says that salt was used three ways. Seasoning, for seasoning in a tasteless world. In other words, we live in the cosmic system, and so the believer is supposed to add a little spice to the world, a little seasoning in the world. That's a kitchen metaphor, right? Then a second meaning that this writer mentions is preservation in a corrupt world, that we act as a preservative. Uh, this is the application of the principle of blessing by association. We see this in Genesis chapter 19 when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and announced to uh, Abraham that he was going to send these t- the two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham started questioning him. He said, well, if there's, if there's 30 there, would you still destroy it? And Jesus, I mean, the Lord said no. And uh, Abraham said, well, if there were um, 20, there were 10, if there were five, and, and because of the presence of believers, this would have prevented judgment. And, and that's a true principle. The question is, is that what this is teaching? Um, but that's the idea of preservation in a corrupt world. And the third that uh, NAT mentions is fertilizer to encourage production. So that's, that's their three. Ryrie, in his notes on the Ryrie Study Bible, notes a different three. Uh, he, he, like uh, the first one, indicates preservation. Salt preserves. The second is salt creates thirst, and salt cleanses. So he's got two others uh, that are differ. So we look at this list here. These are the ones that are uh, 
often are usually indicated. Lou Barbieri, who wrote the commentary of Matthew in the Bible Knowledge Commentary set, which was published by Dallas Seminary, said that <clears throat> that this meant that they would the disciples were to create a thirst for greater information. I think that is not the best supported uh, analogy. Uh, the second is to season food. This is to make it make uh, the world, as it were, their place in the world is to add a certain amount of seasoning to something that would be otherwise bland. That's using a kitchen metaphor. The third is the most popular use, and that is to preserve. Uh, this has been attested in the ancient world all the way up to the present that the presence of salt prevents spoilage of food. So that is uh, the most popular meaning. The fourth is to fertilize, which is also a somewhat more popular interpretation than many people uh, realize, and there are quite a number of scholars who have gone through this. And, in fact, there, there was a great article published in Biblical Archaeologist in 1952 that gave some tremendous information on the use of salt as, as fertilizer. You, you use it sparingly. If you put too much salt in, then the soil will not be productive at all. But if you put a low level of salt, even today salts are included in fertilizers, it helps to kill uh, the, the, the shallow-rooted uh, weeds uh, that are there. That's part of its operation. According to rabbinical thought, salt was a metaphor for wisdom. Sixth, it's, a, uh, it's for purification. This is why salt was included in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, indicating purification and cleansing. And then salt would be applied to a lamp's wick to increase the brightness of its burning. Now, you could see that in each of these elements, you could go back and you could make a case for why a disciple might manifest that particular characteristic. And so there are also some who say Jesus is rather ambiguous here. He doesn't define the precision of his comparison. So he's really saying that salt, just as salt is extremely valuable and has many different applications and many different ways in which it's significant, so the believer is very significant uh, in the world around him. So we have to somehow define this. How do we narrow this down so that we can properly understand what Jesus is describing? He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, the important thing to note here, he doesn't say you are salt. He defines what he means by salt. He doesn't say you're rock salt or table salt. He says you're the salt of the earth. What does that mean? The word translated earth there is the Greek word ge, which means the earth or the land. Sometimes it describes soil and the ground. At times it can describe a, the land of a region, the land of Capernaum, the land of uh, Zarephath, the land of Sidon, the land of Israel. It, is a, it usually translates Arts from the Hebrew indicating land or even earth, which is talking about the physical uh, planet, not the inhabitants of the planet. 
And that's an important distinction. So when we look at this and we talk about, well, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Is that really the best translation? Should we translate it the salt of the world, like the, like what we see in the next phrase, or the light of the world? Is earth supposed to be a synonymous parallel to world? Cosmos, that we find in verse 14, the light of the world, does have a lot of evidence that it's, it is used to refer to the inhabitants of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son. Okay, that's a case of cosmos referring to the inhabitants of the world. Now, this is how a number of, uh, of scholars take this, where earth equals the inhabitants of the, of the earth. It's a synonym for world in verse 14. And this is a basic meaning to either the seasoning interpretation, the thirst interpretation, or the preservation interpretation. But if earth does not equate like that, if there's no attestation of earth, meaning the inhabitants of the earth, if gay does not relate to the inhabitants of the earth, but only the physical soil, the ground, the land, the district, then we got a problem. And that is the problem. Gay is used 39 times in Matthew. It's used 92 times in the Gospels. Um, well, I mistyped that. No synonymous usage with world. None. Not once. In fact, if you look in some dictionaries, the only place that they list where it means the inhabitants of the world is in Matthew 5.13. Well, you can't prove your point by citing the verse you're studying. You have to have other evidence. Now, there's three or four other places that another uh, lexicon cites as evidence, but that's very debatable. In fact, I th- my reading of those passages is, is, is it's more, more obviously earth than it is the inhabitants of the earth. So in option two, earth, as it's primarily translated, means uh, get means land or soil, if you look at the parable of the soils, all through those, the, those parables, uh, you, you have get used and translated as soil or ground. Uh, so this is its primary meaning, the land of Israel, uh, the land of a nation, the land uh, incorporating a city or a region, uh, soil, ground, earth in terms of the planet, the heavens, and the earth uses the word get, not cosmos. Very important distinction in Scripture. So in this view, salt of the earth equals salt for the land, meaning its use agriculturally. So the issue is in the other three views, seasoning, thirst, and preservation. Seasoning and preservative are the predominant ones. Thirst doesn't work at all. Seasoning and preservative are both kitchen metaphors. Salt for the land in a fertilizer use is an agricultural metaphor. So the basic issue for us is, is this going to be a kitchen metaphor, agricultural metaphor? Salt of the earth is understood by most of these other positions to be salt for the earth, salt for the world. If you're going to be the salt of the earth as a preservative, you're salt for the earth. That's called an objective genitive. If you're talking about creating a thirst in the world for righteousness or for truth, it's still salt for uh, the earth, salt for the word. So all of the, the primary views 
take this as an objective genitive, salt for the earth. The issue is, does the earth refer to land or does it refer to the people who inhabit the land? That has to be determined exegetically. You can't just say, ah, it makes good sense to me to put it this way. Evidence, evidence, evidence. Context, context, context. Do we have something in the text of Scripture that is going to cause us to lean in one direction or another? Yes, we do. So the question, as I pointed out a second ago, is Jesus using a kitchen metaphor? Is it seasoning or being a preservative to prevent spoilage? Is it a kitchen metaphor or is it an agricultural metaphor that indicates productivity? Now, in the parallel in Luke 14, Jesus says, in Luke 14:34, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, see it translates that. We'll look at that phrase in just a minute. How shall it be seasoned? And then Jesus says, and this is different from the Matthew passage. It's neither fit for the land, geh. See here it translates geh as land, not earth. It's not fit for the land because he's talking about agriculture. He's talk, using This fits a, an agricultural metaphor, and that's really clear in the next statement he makes, nor for the dunghill. Now, what does he mean by the dunghill? See, it's not fit for the dunghill. He doesn't say because it's not fit, you throw it in the dunghill. You throw it in the manure pile. No, he says it's not good for the, it's not fitting, it's not proper for the dunghill. What do you mean it's not proper for the manure pile? What purpose would salt have in a manure pile? Well, in those days, as they collected manure from the, uh, from the farm animals, if they didn't want it to ferment or to spoil, they would put a light coat of salt over it to prevent spoilage before they put it in the field. And so salt had a value to put in the field as a fertilizer, and there's a lot of attestation from both ancient writers as well as um, some modern writers related to its salt's use in fertilization. In the ancient world, Cato and Virgil were among some of the ancient writers who described salt as, quote, improving the herbage of pastures. A book was written in 1923 by Lyon and Buckman called The Nature and Properties of Soils that stated that adding salt improves the productivity of some soils. Horace Greeley, who's more famous for saying, go west, young man, go west, wrote that five bushels of salt applied correctly to a field would yield five more bushels of corn per acre. Salt was also used until recently to apply to asparagus fields to kill weeds. Asparagus has deep roots, so a little bit of salt would kill the shallow roots of the uh, of the of the weeds that would be growing up around it. So here we have an attestation from Luke 14.35 that Jesus applies this metaphor in an agricultural context, not in a kitchen context. So this is how you do the investigation. You see a phrase that could go in two directions. It could be A or it could be B. What does the context, what does the verbiage around it seem to indicate? And the verbiage that surrounds it in Luke 9 indicates that Jesus uses this metaphor in an agricultural sense. And in agriculture, it would produce, it would produce uh, growth, 
productivity is the focal point. Now, that second phrase, the salt loses its flavor, translates, this is the real tricky part, translates the Greek verb moirino, where we get our word moron, okay, foolishness. And it means to make foolish, and it, and it is applied figuratively for something that has been made useless. Now, this sort of relates to that rabbinic idea that salt stood for wisdom. And so morino means to make something to become foolish. And so it could be understood, and it is by some, that this verse would mean that disciples who lose their savor are, in fact, making fools of themselves. The significance is really that it makes them useless. They, they have a mission. The disciple has a purpose in God's calling, and if they fail in that, they are becoming useless in terms of God's purpose for them. Now, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's not that salt loses its flavor. It becomes useless. Moirino is a figurative sense, is used in a figurative sense there. So we lose this in the English. In all those versions, remember at the beginning I said most of these translations translate as if it's a kitchen metaphor. It has to do with flavoring. But the verb that's there isn't a verb that has anything to do with flavor. It really has a sense of being useless. And then we read the next phrase, how shall it be seasoned? And literally, this is the verb form, halas is the word for salt. This is the verb form, halizo, and it literally it is how shall it be salted? If the uh, salt becomes useless, how can it be salted? That's the question. There's a redundancy there, and that's the Holy Spirit does that for emphasis and to get our, our point. The problem that's brought up is salt is an extremely stable chemical compound. It's sodium chloride, and it doesn't break down. So the question is, well, is Jesus making a misstatement here? Salt can't become saltless. It's, that's impossible. See, this is why salt was included in covenants, in, in perpetual covenants in the, in the Old Testament. And you find the phrase in a few passages, the salt of the covenant, is because since salt was permanent, it didn't break down, it indicated that this was a permanent or eternal or everlasting covenant. Salt doesn't break down. But the kind of salt that was common in Israel was salt that came from the Dead Sea area that was a product of, of uh, the evaporation of the water, and then you had this salt that was left over. But there were other chemical compounds that were associated with that, and they would use that for various purposes, including and primarily for agricultural purposes. But as uh, it was, water was introduced to it, the sodium chloride would leach out of, away from the other compounds, so it would become useless. You would have this compound of salt and other things. The, uh, the, the, the sodium chloride would be leached out as, over time, and you would be left with a residue that was no longer usable for fertilizer in the fields. So, again, this, this confirms um, uh, an agricultural application of the metaphor as opposed to a kitchen application of the metaphor. Uh, after things leached out, you'd be left with compounds such as gypsum and lime and a few other things that were uh, not, not usable. So 
In conclusion, then, what we see is that uh, several arguments substantiate and confirm a fertilizer meaning for the context, an agricultural meaning. It's based on the lexical meaning of the word for earth, gay, rather than using cosmos there. You're using a word that doesn't have substantiation anywhere else where it means the inhabitants. It's talking about salt, salt for the earth there would just be you are fertilizer. You're to make production, and it would be understood as spiritual production. And so this gives us an understanding there. By using the agricultural metaphor, Jesus is emphasizing that a disciple should be productive. Now, that fits the context. He's supposed to be productive in terms of his character in the Beatitudes that we've already studied. He's being productive in light of a future goal, which is reward at the judgment seat of Christ, and to be able to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the context. So rewards are in the context of verse 12, and good works are in the context of verse 16. If we see the next metaphor, which we won't get to this morning, you are the light of the world. There are a range of ways in which light is used in Scripture in terms of illumination and revelation in the midst of darkness. But we have it clarified for us in verse 16. See, it's so important. Just read the context, and the Bible tells you how it's using things. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. So light is related to production. In the next metaphor, the production of the believer in terms of divine good, good that is performed, uh, that has eternal value, that has spiritual value. So the, the metaphor, you are the salt of the earth, is bracketed by verse 12 and verse 16 that both talk about spiritual production. So it fits the context better. The idea of preserving a, the corrupt world or keeping it from being as corrupt as it is just isn't present in this context at all, but the idea of productivity is in this context. So once again, we have to look at context to help determine the metaphor. So the point that I've been making here, and I've been really beating this because we've all heard, in fact, it's almost proverbial that salt of the earth in the light of the world means you need to be politically active and you need to be involved in the culture I'm not saying those ideas aren't wrong, but that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is talking about the fact that the disciple needs to be productive. He needs to be productive. Good works need to, need, need to be produced in the life of the believer under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and that this has eternal value and eternal significance will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ in preparation for the individual believer's role and responsibility in the kingdom. And so when we finalize our understanding here, what Jesus is saying is you're to be fertilizer. You as a disciple are to be productive. You're to to produce things in your life, and a disciple is to make disciples. That goes to the Great Commission. Every disciple is to make disciples in some way or another. We're involved in evangelism. We're involved in witnessing. Our life uh, is a witness and evidence to others. And in those ways, we are contributing to productivity. And that's the emphasis there. And when the, the believer is not productive, then he's useless. 
And that also fits the context and the metaphor. The believer needs to be productive and useful in terms of God's plan uh, for the church age with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study through these things, to, to dig into the scriptures, to reflect upon the meaning of these terms and phrases and metaphors that we might come to a, a more clear understanding of what it is that you're communicating, that we may have a better understanding of how to apply the scriptures. Father, we pray that we might fully understand that all of this, the spirit, uh, salvation and the spiritual life are based on grace, Grace is not earned or deserved. Grace is freely given. And through Christ's death on the cross, we're freely given salvation, justification, by simply believing or trusting in Christ as Savior, and we're given our spiritual life. Father, for those who are here that may not be saved, this is an opportunity to recognize that that the only thing needed for salvation is faith in Christ to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and by trusting in him and him alone, you have eternal life. For believers, the challenge for us is to continue to grow, to be productive, to be fruitful. And this only occurs by walking by the Spirit, for we do not produce the fruit ourselves, but as we walk by the Spirit under grace, God the Holy Spirit produces fruit within us, and that productivity makes us useful in terms of the body of Christ and in terms of the plan of God. We pray that you challenge us with these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.